All right, Michael, when you first graduated from high school, were you already interested in data privacy and security before going to Cornell? If not, when and what intrigued you about InfoSec? Yeah, it's fantastic. You know what? I was uh, I was that kid who, when he graduated high school, uh, this is a long time ago now, I knew I needed to go to college, but like, was I interested in security? I didn't know what I was interested in, I, it, which is interesting because I was almost interested in everything. It was like, yes, this is all really cool. And uh, my major, my school at Cornell actually ended up, my degree is called policy analysis and design. And what's interesting about that is the way it was described to me, this might've been my junior, senior year, uh, was Michael, hopefully we've taught you that problems can be and are often complex and you have to draw on multiple disciplines to both understand them and solve them. And all I can tell you is all these years later, it's still fascinating to me that that school doesn't turn out more people for security because it's right. exactly the challenges that we face today. But no, I, I, you know, I, did I know about security? Maybe, but uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't an interest to me. And in fact, you know, if you think about how I got into security, I just, I asked too many questions. You know, the way I, I, I ended up I intentionally didn't interview at the end, right? So there's usually this big crush and it's, all right, where are you going to go and where, where are you going to go on your interviews? And I said, yeah, yeah I'm going to take some time off. I, I, my parents were not thrilled with that, by the way. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you're going to graduate Cornell and take time off. But when I was at Cornell, I started a DJ business. I started a moving company and I had this really cool opportunity to be a bartender and and the way I had done that taught me a lot about the bar business. And I said, guys, listen, I know how to DJ. <laughs> I, <laughs> I have a bar. I know how to bartend. Like, I'll keep myself alive. And I think their biggest fear was he's never going to do anything else. Um, right. But I, I wanted some time. I wanted to decompress. I, I very much didn't want to rush into something that I would regret. Looking back at it, that's kind of stupid. But it, it worked out pretty well. And it ended up getting me a position with Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture. Uh, and, okay. it, and I got put on the tech team, right? So, so mind you, I have a bachelor's of science, but I don't have, uh, you know, it's not engineering. It's not computer science. It's definitely not programming. In fact, programming <laughs> is what pretty much convinced me that was not the right direction for me. Sure. But every time they had a problem, they'd come to me because I had learned to think about stuff differently. And let me tell you, being on a technical team, I, people threw a lot of stuff at me just to see what I could or couldn't do. I always had a knack for tech. I, in fact, I enjoyed it. I, I was the kid who in high school was building computers from scratch. So I, so I got it. It just wasn't, it wasn't my biggest pursuit. The way I got into security was really simple. There was a Friday afternoon. It was a massive project. I mean, imagine a project going back 20-something years ago now where you, you're putting 250 kids out of college uh, in uh, upstate New York to solve a problem for the government that's a blend of, you know, custom code and development and all sorts of stuff. And I was essentially a utility player on the tech team and oh, wow. uh, at the time had lived locally. So I was also responsible for like our Windows NT servers and our Unix farm and all sorts of other stuff. And I went to the partner on a Friday afternoon and I said, hey, Tom, our pricing spreadsheet is accessible to the client. Is that what you intended? 
<laughs> and he looked at me and he said, nope, that's a big problem. All right, listen, I'm going uh, to fly home and I'll be back Monday afternoon. Fix it. Now, at the time, we got paid for overtime. So it wasn't like I was working for free. I mean, I, you know, I, I got it. But to set the stage, I think we had two security books at the time. We had practical Unix and internet security, and okay. we had, which is the big yellow book from O'Reilly. And then I think it was the first one like web commerce and security or something like that, right? So this is like 19, 1997. Okay. And, um, I figured it out. I don't know how. I mean, the internet wasn't what it was now, right? We didn't have Google. We didn't have any of that stuff. But I figured it out, and I was able to split it off, and it didn't blow anything up, and it didn't piss anybody off. <laughs> and my reward was come out to dinner, and and by the way, we're going to buy you some prime rib and lobster, and uh, and you're going to sit at the table with the client, and we're going to do all this stuff, right? So here I am, 21, 22 years old. Solved a really cool problem, and the next thing you know, I was the security expert. And every time they had any question related to security, it came to me. And one of the guys on the project... Uh, it was a multi-party project. There were a bunch of vendors there. I started spending time with IBM and, and talking with them about security. And I started spending time with some of the locals, including a person who'd been a police officer. And we spent a lot of time together looking at stuff and solving it and figuring things out. And then one day I got a call from a, a, a small group in Chicago and they said, hey, you're a security guy. Great. We've got this really cool project, oddly enough, doing HIPAA and privacy down in Jacksonville, Florida. We need you. And I said, sweet, I don't know who you are, how you got my number, but I'm not in security and I'm not a security person. And they laughed at me and they said, well, tell me what you're working on. I listed out, they said, right. Okay, so congratulations, you are a security person. Uh, (laughs) It was a a startup. Accenture was starting up a a security practice uh, global. It was a globally focused, it was a separate group within Accenture that was designed to look at all this stuff. And I was one of the first 20 or 30 people through the door. And um, they had enough pull that they essentially got me yanked off of that project. And uh, next thing you know, I was in Jacksonville, Florida. So that that was that was at 22. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And it, and this is back when security didn't exist. Like if you told somebody you did security, the logical question was, "You're a security guard." And I like to think, at least physique-wise, I might have looked like it back then. Uh, and so <laughs> I was kind of like, all right, yeah, cool. But like, if you were in an airplane and you told somebody in, in 97, 98, you did security, it, it was it, so like force protection, like were you in the military? Are you a cop? Like, what do you do? It, it had nothing to do with any of the stuff that we look at today. And we had career counselors. And I had a guy tell me that um, going the security route was a career limiting move. And I really needed to think about this or not. Because what was I going to do uh, down the road? This this was not a good decision on their part. In, in, in all fairness, Gabe, Gabe Gum's jumping in here. I, I I don't know that he was wrong in 1997. <laughs> like, like I mean, look, 2020 is it still? I mean, I don't know what the average CISO tenure is, but it's it's still not that healthy. I mean, <laughs> no. is it is it really that uh, that that career moving? But you you, you said something and. You know, Cam and I were, were talking to CISO of uh, another organization earlier this week, last week, I remember. And I, I think I'm going to start playing this little fun game of where were you when HIPAA was enacted, right? Like one of those things where it's like, where were you when like XYZ uh, world <laughs> event happened? Because I find it interesting that a lot of people do do kind of almost inadvertently use that as a reference point to their early careers in security and, you know, full disclosure for those that aren't intimately familiar with, with my background. I think I only got into it several years after yourself. In 97, I was doing, you know, kind of networking. And then by like 98, 99, I, I was like full born into InfoSec. But it does beg the question too, right? And, and it, 
like, consider yourself the first contestant of the game. 1997, what were you doing when HIPAA went into full effect? Because as we sit here in 2020 on the Privacy Please podcast, HIPAA represents one of the first, if not the first, major privacy-focused regulations, right? And I'm I'm emphasizing those words very intentionally because it was focused on privacy and it would be years later until we see another such regulation and it came out of the EU. And then even many years later before we see yet another EU regulation and now some US regulation. So let's double click. Let's hover a little bit on 97. You're in security. You're one of these 20, 30 people in and, you know, HIPAA is a big deal, right? It's big enough that- yeah. Yeah. Let me bring you back because here's the interesting part. So I've got a policy analysis background. My two policy concentrations, actually, we were only supposed to choose one, but I couldn't. I split between education policy and healthcare policy. Ooh. And most of that work gets done in your senior year. And I rem- we were looking at HIPAA and, and, you know, and I'm remembering these artifacts. But one of the things, because you talk about privacy focused is in my courses, as we're dissecting this and we're looking at healthcare and we're looking at healthcare globally and learning how to compare and compare populations and understand it, we certainly looked at things like waste, fraud, and abuse. But the thing that did come up, and I remember talking about privacy because I'm pretty sure the professor said something to the effect of, uh, well, and did you know that your medical records don't even have any privacy attached to them? And it was that. Of course they do, right? And this is like 25 years ago. Of course they do. Nope, they didn't. Uh, The Privacy Act of 1974 was interesting, limited, and didn't have any play here. And so it's interesting you say that because this definitely, I mean, we called it port. It was all about portability and this notion that people weren't changing jobs because healthcare was such a nightmare. Um, And so therefore, here you go. And it was interesting as, as I was getting ready for this conversation because, you know, I didn't rush into this. Like I didn't rush into this like, oh, now that I have health policy and this HIPAA thing's coming, I can solve it. And when I fell into security, uh, you know, where it's people have explained to me, you know, I, I think different. And I think a lot of us in security think different. So fit mm-hmm. and, and I'm here and I've been here for a really long time. What's interesting though is, as I just pointed out, that second project was all around HIPAA and HIPAA policies and really getting into it and, and doing that in like 98, right? So and it would have been like 98. That's right when all of this stuff had been signed, but it hadn't gone into effect yet, which meant everybody's kind of scrambling and saying, well, wh- what do we need to do? What does it look like? And it was a great time to do it because you, you really got a chance to start asking those questions. And it was the health insurers paying attention to it. And it was the healthcare companies and the hospitals. And, and it was interesting because I've looked back over the last two decades and between you know 97 and, and 2010, I worked on at least four or five different types of HIPAA programs, right? Especially because right, the, the privacy stuff really got codified in 2003, 2004. And then we did more of the rules around it. And, and I still think it's a decent model about the things that are, you know, you have to do this versus it's addressable. And what I always love is, so address it. <laughs> like, yes, we looked at it. Doesn't apply. Next, as long as you can prove it, that's really kind of cool. Nice. That is interesting. I can take this in a number of tangents because when you think about the fact that the unintended consequence of HIPAA being uh, a driver of data security as as uh, as a regulation versus its original intent of, and you make a very good point, of portability because people weren't moving jobs. But guess what? People still 
aren't moving jobs because they're worried about healthcare. And now we have to have a regulation like CCPA that attempts to protect the privacy of individuals' data across things more than just healthcare. And so we, we, we come almost full circle on, on these ideas, which is which is just remarkable when you think about it in that context. Um, well, yeah, and let me just make a quick comment too, right? Because you pointed out something I think is really important, and, and we will definitely not turn this into a healthcare podcast, but I spent a long time studying healthcare. What's interesting is, yeah, people still don't move because for some reason, we've never figured out that if we decouple healthcare from employment, the problem seems to go away. Yeah. But, but we didn't. We still tightly couple healthcare with employment, and therefore we're going to keep seeing these things. What I think is a really interesting unintended consequence was this was supposed to de- decrease waste, fraud, and abuse, and it has done nothing to benefit that. By the way, I'm sure somebody somewhere is going to disagree with me, and that's cool. You're welcome to. But if you go to the typical doctor's office 20 years ago, they could tell you what the cash price for something was. And on average, I want to say they had like three or four rounds with an insurer to get something covered. The last time I checked, it was like 11. 11 bounces back and forth. And if anybody actually opens their EOBs, their explanation of benefits, a lot of times it's it was de- de- you know denied. And then you call and, oh, our bad. It was coded wrong. Oh, okay, we'll approve that. These games happen all the time. So it's, yeah. it's interesting because to your point, what HIPAA's really done is it's changed our focus on privacy and security. And right. it, it was built into it by design, but that was never what it was stated to do. And yet that's almost exactly what it's done. So I think it's a, I think it's a fantastic consequence. I think the question is, what do we do about it? Well, I think you're touching on part of it, right? right. That privacy by design, that is language that is, is littered all throughout GDPR and has now become just kind of really commonplace in, in, our, in our lexicon. Um, when talking about security and privacy, talk about decoupling things. You can't decouple those two things, right? You cannot have uh, privacy without security, but you can have security without privacy. And that's been decoupled for quite some time. And so, you know, do you think most co- companies incorporate privacy by design um, at all today, even inadvertently? Uh, wh- wh- where do you see that? It, it, it's a loaded question, and I've got some things to unpack it. But here, here's the quick answer. No. I don't think companies do. So I think the question to ask then is why? Why don't they? Why why haven't we seen more of that? But let me let me bring it back. So in 2000, I actually went to the FTC hearings on privacy. Uh, a colleague and I, we took the train. I was in New York City at the time, took the train down. And and they we showed up right and so they had to be public and they were like, "You're you're here for the privacy thing? Seriously?" <laughs> uh Okay, cool. Yeah, we got some chairs for you guys. Come on over. It was it was really kind of fascinating. Um, and I recorded it. And I'm pretty confident in a storage facility. I still have uh, the cassette tapes. Right. This is this is 2000s cassette tapes. But here's what I the thing I remember the most was um, there was a, a guy. His name was Ted. He worked for Excite Excite at Home. If you guys remember, I mean, you got to go in a way back machine. But they were a company. And he said something to the effect of. Well, you know, we've got terabytes of data uh, that we don't know what to do with, or something to that, something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And one of the other folks, uh, one of the privacy lawyers, said something to, to the effect of, "Then delete it." And he said, "Oh, <laughs> why would we do that? Just because I told you we don't know what to do with it now doesn't mean we don't think it's got value in the future." And it was like that, like, "Oh, so people are amassing all this data and they don't know what to do with it yet." Okay, well, flash yeah. forward now. They know what to do with that data. They love it. But so here's some interesting things because you brought up GDPR. 
Um, so, so there's a paper. I just saw it yesterday, um, and I, I put this out, uh, out on, uh, on LinkedIn. So GDPR says you have to have the ability to opt out, and if you opt out, can't be tracked. Do you guys, either of you know how many people have opted out? Probably none. 12.5%, so better than they expected, to be fair. And the neat thing is, this is so if we start thinking about this in economics terms, right, which is still my background, it was a, it was a better choice, right? So, so the choice options... If I'm a privacy-seeking consumer, um, and I had a used, I used to have to use different browsers and block cookies and check things and whatever. Now I just click a box and say, "Cool, opt out." That's that's a huge benefit for them. Yeah. You want to talk about unintended consequences? So here's the balance: the other, not twelve and a half percent, they are now more persistently tracked. So we went from where it was very fragmented, it was very difficult to track people and their behaviors and their actions and, and to, to turn it into anything meaningful. And we said, well, <laughs> you're going to have privacy by design and people can opt out. Yep. Okay. But a low percentage opt out. And you can look at that positive or negative. I don't look at that as a failure. I'm just looking at it as it is. Uh, it does this. So here's a different question. Do people want privacy or do they want anonymity? This was a conversation I used to have back when I lived in New York City. If anybody's ever commuted to any sort of a city, it's always been fascinating to me, the people that got on the train every day. And, and typically, right, so I lived in New Jersey. I'd get on New Jersey Transit. You know, we usually stood at the same place on the platform. I was usually like second or third car. We, it's like you kind of, especially in the morning crowd, you know where you're going to sit. And the reason I'm setting it up that way is, you know, Gabe, you may not have known me. I may not have known you, but we knew to wave at each other every morning because we saw each other every morning. And you got to go back now with me 20 years. So you probably had your copy of the Wall Street Journal or, you know, and, and whatever your Jersey paper was or the Times or the USA Today or whatever you wanted to read. And, and that's kind of what you read on the way in. And cell phones were there. With the conversations that people would have on their cell phones with their doctors about their diagnoses, people giving out things today that would make us cringe from a personally identifiable information perspective was routine. Why? Well, because you didn't really know me. I didn't really know you. I didn't really know where you lived and vice versa. And unless I was really some sort of a malicious person, who would do that? And so you think, well, that's a different situation. No, New York City, right? New York City, by the way, where people in 20 years ago were like ripping labels off of boxes and blacking things out and shredding stuff. The conversations you could hear people having in the hallways of buildings, again, very highly personal, highly private stuff, but essentially wide open. Why? Because I think a lot of times we confuse privacy with anonymity. And so now what happens is, is it that people are expecting privacy or if they don't know what to say? And really what I think they want is they want trust. They want yeah. some level that if you have my information, that I can trust that you're not going to use it in a, in a way that I don't want you to use it. But by the way, and I, there's another point here to make, but go look at it. And I, let me see if I can find the number here real quick. Yeah, here I found it. Number of consumers. How many consumers, and this is a 2019 survey, how many consumers want personalization when they buy something online or when they're working even offline when in, in a retail setting how many want something that's absolutely personalized for them because it knows who they are i'm gonna say everyone 63 percent. 63 percent that they they want that they strongly want that they crave that they expect that now back when i was at accenture we saw the same thing you know in 2000 well, let's see i left you i left uh, in 2000 so somewhere in 98 99 there was an accenture labs group that had done similar types of work so here's here's the question then right so when you say privacy by design so first of all 
I think there's a lot of confusion when we say, right, to your point, there's security, there's, a sh there's risk, there's privacy, and there's compliance. They're all related. Oh, wait, let's go ahead and add in governance too. Okay, so wait a minute. Where does all this fit? And then there's the technical challenges, data, data everywhere. And some of it I can read and some of it's corrupted and most of it I have no clue. And then we have competing priorities. So is my job as a business to protect the data or is my job as a business to use the data as best as I can to figure out where to go, right? Even General Mills, General Mills, they make cereal. And for years, the way that they got data was going to the Nielsen Group and, and yeah. doing massive surveys. And they've said, you know what? We can do better now. And they've hired a new position and they have a, 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 a C-level position reporting to the CEO to take a look at data and analytics in the new market to better understand the consumers and how to position things that the consumers want. So to go back to your question, you know, and the reason I called it a loaded question is privacy by design. It sounds good. It sounds smart when we're talking about it in a bubble. But I think if we go back out and say, well, why isn't it happening? Right. And, and I didn't press it on like, what did we really mean? Because I think the question to ask is, is why and, and where and where does it fit? It's all amazing points. I would have thought in particular that more people would want to have things tailored to them. I personally, um, I, I respect my own privacy quite a bit, and, you know, it, and I do so in a number of different ways. And I'm again, maybe to a fault sometimes, a big believer in if I'm not the, if I'm not the customer, I'm the product, right? I'll say, you guys hear me say this all the time, and I I understand that in order to trade some things off, like I'm willing to trade some level of privacy for largely not convenience, but oftentimes for, for, for things like, yeah, personalized experiences. And when I say privacy, yeah, I will let Amazon analyze my behaviors, right? Like, yeah, I buy this, I buy that, you know, the, that type of thing so that they can help me make better purchasing decisions. And when I say better, I mean, you know, show me things that I, I care about. I, I'm okay with that. I think what I still don't see yet is a better framework for both these these organizations as well as individuals to be able to uh, explicitly trade on their data, if you would. Because I'm I'm going to agree with you. I don't think most people I, I don't think most people even understand the difference, quite frankly, between privacy and anonymity. Right? I how many times have you heard the well, if, if, if you've got nothing to hide, then then why do you need privacy? It's like, well, that's that's not that's not what privacy is, right? That's right. right. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I don't even think they understand that. So, so with all of your background in uh, in in privacy and security, and you've obviously been doing this for a really long time, what are you up to these days with, with Security Catalyst? That that's that's the organization that that you run now. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's been kind of fun, and um and thanks for asking. You know, the thing that's been neat about Security Catalyst is, uh, first of all, I, I want to just make something clear. Catalyst was a name that was given to me. Um, I originally it started as the Michelangelo Group, and then um I, I I tried like you know the the branding thing. I did this bald security expert idea. Decided, I mean, the bald thing I like, uh, but I didn't really want to be an expert. Like you know, and I know our industry has that whole, it's part imposter syndrome and and part meritocracy. We say. Phew, you can't declare yourself an expert. And by the way, I agreed with it. Like I, I bought in on it. So here's what happened. I was working with a group of people and they said, dude, you're a total catalyst. And I said, well, what does that mean? Right? And when I looked at it and that was the birth of Security Catalyst. And that was, I mean, we're still going back like 20 years now, uh, I guess about 17 years on Security Catalyst. The whole goal that I've always had is how do you reduce friction 
in our industry. So I've, I've routinely worked with uh, vendors that have good solutions and uh, security leaders in their teams that are solving the right problems and they want to figure that out. About 15 years or so ago, I got invited to work with a Fortune 10 to start training their risk team on how to communicate differently to the business. And that started this really cool, and I'll make it quick, cascade of events where I really started paying attention to how we communicate. But my goal wasn't to say, well, this is how I do it, and you can be like me, because that's not useful to anybody. And I get really leery of that stuff. So I said, let's go look at the tenets of effective communication and what they are and, and how they can do it. And so I've been studying that for most of my life. I was always fascinated in that. But what I started doing was creating models and frameworks so that other people could develop their own styles, but still communicate value effectively. Well, it turns out that's awesome, but then you have to start understanding value. And I learned something really cool about a decade, decade and a half ago now, which is if you're trying to communicate value to somebody, but they are out of sync, out of touch, disconnected from their own value, they will struggle to see yours. So that leads me to start looking at, well, how do we help people reconnect with their value? So that then, uh, that got me into a bunch of communication leadership stuff. And uh, five years ago, November 2015, I was at an event and uh, it was the birth of what we call the Straight Talk Framework. I had just given a talk and uh, one of the sponsors got up and said, hey, I'm, I'm Tom and I'm here to sell you. And everybody checked out instantly. And the resulting conversation helped me realize that in a security space, we have as many challenges communicating inward as a lot of the vendors have communicating to us. And so what happened was I really started digging in on that. And over the last five years, I developed out the Straight Talk framework, which is something I happily give away for free. And uh, it, it started with five questions. And, and by the way, this is not one of those stories I could start with five, but now it's 500. It started with five <laughs> questions that I now realize set up a pretty good value proposition or what we call a, a potential value. And then I had already done the work on how to articulate and communicate that value. The missing link fell into place last year. And it was, how do you achieve that value? How do you actualize that? How do I help you execute? And there's a really cool corollary I figured out this year. Think about this, guys. How many projects have you seen, I'll say that go sideways. So we'll still pat ourselves on the back and say it was a success. But if we're honest about our assessment, it was underscoped, right? So what we delivered was under what we scoped. It was over budget. It was over time. Ooh. So if we look at that from a value perspective and we're really critical, did we deliver the value that we wanted? Critically, right. most cases, no. You know what the key to that is? Executing rapidly. Oh, by the way, you want to know what the key to telling a better story is? Understanding your context and value. You know how you do that? With a better story. So to answer your question, uh, what I've been up to is figuring out how to help do that more and more. And it's been interesting. My, what my clients have told me is they rely on me to help navigate the business and political landscape so that they and their teams can focus on solving the right problems. We can't solve 30 problems a year. But if you sure. pick the right three, you're going to create dramatic value. And that's going to deliver those business results. And what's really neat is that kind of matches into identifying the right potential, executing against it ruthlessly, and then capturing those right artifacts and telling that story better. And that's what I get the chance to do. And I, I love it. I love it. I lo and I love our industry. And I know that we can look at it and say, well, not much has changed in the last two decades. And as much as that's true, it's all different. And that's so freaking exciting. Security 20 years ago, if you told somebody you did security, they'd laugh at you. There were like zero security startups. There were no conferences for security. And I say, no, I, there were three right now. 
There's so many. There's too many. And everybody yeah. gets upset about that. That's fine. It'll settle out. This is a great time. Security's on a big stage. People are interested. They're asking these questions. And so what I get to do with Security Catalyst and uh, the, the newer version, which we call Straight Talk Works, is I get to go help people solve those challenges. And, and, and if you'll allow me, what I like to do is I show them what they're like. In fact, I spent some time working on a purpose statement. And if you've never done this, do it. You're going to resist it like I did. And you're going to say, no, no, I got it like I did. And then when somebody asks you pointedly and you kind of stammer over it, but here's mine. And, and I didn't follow the Simon Sinek formula, but I followed my own. I love it when somebody sees something remarkable or great in themselves that inspires them to realize their untapped potential and create a story worth celebrating. Guys, we deal with so much negativity and such of the downside of risk and security that what I want is I want love over fear. I want unity over division. And I want people to see that they're doing great stuff. And it's that chance sometimes to see the situation as it is and to understand the value. And instead of feeling beat up that we didn't get 20 things done or 200 things done, feel great that, that you kicked ass on three things that moved the needle that, that you felt good about. That's what I get to do. I get to help great people doing good work see it. I'm not there to tell them they're wrong. I'm, I'm there to, to booster them where they're right and help keep them moving in that right direction. And I am so grateful for that every day. You know, I think some people might hear this conversation and think, oh, man, that sounded so squishy and lofty and, and, and all lovey-dovey. But, but here's, what, here's what I want to say about that, which is having been in this industry is, you know, just about as long as you have been, the fear, uncertainty, doubt, the loathing in this industry does bring a lot of folks down. Like much like yourself, I speak to speak to a lot of people every day about their security and privacy challenges every single day. Most of them don't know what to do. Most of them don't know where to start. Many of them have an idea of what they want to do, where to start, but they don't know how to articulate their and so it is an important yeah, right. thing to be able to to have a comfortable environment where you can share those stories and and be able to express those things. Um, I, I'm gonna. So next week is RSA, and in preparation for that that show every year, like I've been doing for I don't know how many years now. Um, I'm a I'm an old crusty RSA veteran at this point. There is there's a talk in particular that I'm, I'm interested in seeing: fear and loathing in cybersecurity um, by Dr. Jessica Baker. Um, it is it is one of the, the the few talks there I think maybe because this year is focused on the human element that I think if you can and you're going to be at the show you should definitely go and see. We are still so mired in all of this. Ah, it's going to be fine, and you're gonna you're gonna lose your job, and and people are gonna like so much negativity when in fact yep. solving these problems around these big carry hard problems around privacy and security. We should really try and focus on how that makes people's lives better. Yep. I, I completely agree with you. In fact, if, if you allow me to editorialize quick, and I know we're up against the hard break here, but um, you know, calling it the human element, calling it layer eight, any of those things, guys, that, that is a disconnect and it's a dissonance. And I, I get it. RSA did it, whatever. Cool. It's just people. It's, it's people do business with people. We do business with people we know, like, and trust, and we solve problems with people that we know, like, and trust. And if we go in and say, okay, I'm from security and, and you people are wrong and you don't understand and I, I don't get it, uh, we're going to keep getting what we're getting. The minute you turn around and say, tell me what you're doing and how I can help you do it better and in a way that protects it. Because by the way, 
our customers are expecting us, right? They're trusting us with their information, whether that means privacy, anonymity, or whatnot. Because go back to your point, I'll make it quick, about Amazon. You don't mind Amazon grabbing that data on you and helping you make better decisions. Great. What if they were also selling that? Well, now you're not so happy, right? And, and, and this could take us a good conversation around Facebook, but people are trusting us as a business to do something. And so if you position yourself to say, I can help you solve that challenge in a way that makes our customers happy and makes your job easier and you can follow through on that, there's nothing we can't do in this industry. And I'll leave you with this. Twice now, three times now, I have actively tried to get out of security. Uh, I can freely admit now I, I, I was in a really long uh, depression for about uh, almost a decade. It was kind of terrifying looking back at it. Um, and it's a conversation for another day. But yeah, man, this is a negative place. And, and a lot of us burn out. I think what's happened to me is I've reframed and I've looked at it. I see the bright side. There's so much to do. And you're right. It sounds aspirational and squishy except for I can prove it every day. And this is the best place to be. I love it. I love it. Well, look, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I, I can't wait to have you back again. Um, any closing thoughts before we, we wrap up? Yeah, we need better conversations. You know, if, if you were to ask me, what do I want for the future? Or what do I want? It's, it's let's go have those conversations. To your point, let's stop talking about fines and penalties. Let's start talking about harm. Let's start talking about expectations. Let's get real. Let's get specific. Let's clarify the problems that we're trying to solve and get people excited about that and get them fired up about where this goes. And then I think the solutions start to have themselves. So instead of always telling everybody how it's going to be, why don't we, why don't we flip it and bring it around differently? And I think we're going to see a much, much better return on our efforts. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you so much, Mike. Um, it was, it was honestly just intriguing in, on my part to just kind of sit back and let you and Gabe converse on these topics. And I, I think, like you said before, there's plenty of episodes where we can dive deeper into a lot of these things. And I, I'm really looking forward to, to doing those with you and learning. Yeah, I'll tell you what, anytime you want me back, uh, Cameron, I, I've enjoyed doing this. Gabe and I love these types of conversations and I've enjoyed, Gabe and I have had a lot of time in person to have these types of conversations. You know, And that's the rest of it too. Um, there was some stuff that came out. So, so if we want to talk about it in the future, let's talk about the number of people who said that they can't right maintain these privacy standards. They can't maintain compliance. Let's go talk about what the fines have or haven't done. And let's really try to dig into the problem that we're trying to solve. But let's go look at some data too, see what we yeah. see out of it. Uh, anytime you want, my friend, I will come back. This will be a fantastic conversation to have. And uh, thank you for, for you know giving me, thank you for giving me a chance to reflect back over two decades of this. I don't think a lot of us do that. <laughs> It, no, but can no, you, you can you can hear the passion. You can hear the passion, and it's inspiring on my end. Uh, someone in the industry that's not <clears throat> as knowledgeable as the two of you, but man, it's the passion is just it's it's awesome to to hear and listen to. So I do have one question before I let you go on my end, and I, I love asking this question. So, what are you most excited for being twenty twenty and beyond for data privacy? What, what do you look forward to for the future of this? This is going to seem counterintuitive, but I, I kind of like the fact that now we're starting to see legislations that put some brakes on it. So it's not a runaway train. Um, and that's great. And, and so, you know, it's like I, where I was just kind of saying, you know, at the tail end of, of Gabe's last question with, I want more conversations. Like what gets me excited about it 
is that we're at a place where we can have this level of conversation. We're at the place where we can sit down with the executives and the boards and say, okay, guys, what's the problem we're trying to solve? And instead of just doing, well, I don't know, we got to be compliant. What do our consumers expect or not? Like we, we have a generation or I guess maybe two now of people that have lived with technology and they see it so differently now. Yeah. Our expectations are different. So, you know, McNeely said all those years ago, there's no privacy, get over it. I think to some extent that's probably still true. I mean, you know, if you watch any of these TV shows today, what, what hackers can do, those <laughs> of us in the industry know it's largely fictionalized and terrifyingly accurate at kind of the same time. And yeah. so, you know, but I think it doesn't change. That there's still some stuff there to be had. And so what gets me excited, and again, I, I'm contrarian on this is, I want more conversations of harm. I want more conversations of nothing bad has happened. But but keep in mind, that doesn't mean we're a failure. Nothing bad has happened. Like, guys, we're doing a great freaking job, and therefore, yeah. nothing bad has happened. So great. Let's recalibrate. How do we join forces? How do we – How do we? let's talk about privacy by design, right? So, like, what gets me excited is I think we can go have legitimate conversations now where it's not I have to comply with a standard or I have to comply with a regulation as opposed to a – how do we do this? This is right for our customers. This is right for our clients. This is right for our employees. Also, I don't have to own it all just because I'm in security risk or privacy. So how do we do it across the company? Because the the folks that we're working with, they want this too. And if we, if we shift our approaches and use different language and get people excited, we're going to find that we can do it as a team because it's the right thing to do because people are excited about it because it makes a difference. Oh yeah. And PS will also be compliant and yeah, maybe you'll be able to differentiate yourself. But you know, 20 years ago, if we said, can you differentiate yourself based on security and privacy? Um, we, we would say, Oh, one day, but you know, reality, no. What do we see in 2020 and beyond? Absolutely. If it's a, it's a requirement a lot of times that's compelling. And I think it's the beginning and yeah, there's going to be growing pains and, questions that are you know 500 questionnaires um that's that's nuts great so what, what what has me most excited now we can go have real conversations now we can collect real data now we can analyze real harm real sentiment real problems and let's go pick the right ones to solve oh come on that's fantastic yeah i love it so i'm just going to go ahead and claim you as a recurring guest um <laughs> And uh, we'll I'll tell you what, as often as you want, as long as people don't get tired of me and, uh, you know, ha- happy to like pick topics and dissect them or look at them differently and, and kind of think about it that way, because that's, that's how I like to do it. You know, it's, it's, um, I used to say, I never set out to be contrarian or, or provocative. I always thought to be provocative, you had to be a little too smash mouth. And what I've realized is no, just, just go see it different. I, I I'm very interested in life, just seeing things as they are. And if you can yeah. show me something that, that convinces me to change my opinion, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, we're here to challenge it and uh, just make it better. So I think you hit it right on the head. And Mike, uh, thank you so much for your time. And ladies and gentlemen, if you want to find Michael, um, where can they find you at? Securitycatalyst.com or straighttalk.works. On Twitter, I'm at Catalyst. I got pulled into that a long time ago. Uh, (laughs) And on LinkedIn, um, you can look me up for my name. Awesome. Find Cameron or Gabe and you can find me. Yeah. Well, we'll see you next time. And thank you again so much. Oh, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Privacy Please. This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. Join us next week 
and every week as we delve into the intriguing world of security and privacy. You can email us at privacyplease at spirion.com and hit us up on our Twitter at privacyplspod. If you want to read more into these topics, check out our blogs on spirion.com. Again, I'm Cameron Ivey, an all-around decent guy. Until next time.